From the PSIA AASI Mobile Studios in Eagle Vale, Colorado, we're here with Mike Porter, and we're going to be talking about Interski on First Chair. Mike, it is a real pleasure to be sitting here talking with you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I mean, after seeing your name so much as I was in my real formative years with skiing, it's just like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm here. <laughs> Bobby, I'm happy to be alive then. <laughs> now, Too many years. <laughs> Interski is coming up. What exactly is Interski? I mean, it really got a lot of press in the 80s, kind of didn't hear so much about it in the 90s. What is it? Oh, it actually started before that. It started in the 30s. And the real uh, driving force behind it was marketing skiing. People wanted ski instruction. And basically, you had Switzerland, France, Austria. They were trying to compete for tourists to come to their mountain villages. So they set up this congress, and the countries would show their, how they taught, and they would argue, was the French the best way to learn? Was the Swiss the best way to learn? Was Austrian the best way to learn? Was German that technique? Because they're all competing to get the tourists. The tourists at that time were primarily British. was a huge market that wanted to come to the Alps. Then you had the Germans that wanted the vacation in the Alps and the pure air and the freshness. So it really was a Congress where they, everybody argued and discussed and tried to prove why you should spend your vacation dollars in their country. So were people allowed to come watch? Oh, I mean, they, if, oh 100%. It, so it was, was a big it was well watched. Thing. It was a spectator point, but it had a lot of press. All the press was out there to write articles. And, and each country would bring as many press people. They'd sponsor the press people because the more good articles they had in the British newspapers or the German newspapers or the Dutch newspapers that, that spoke highly of their teaching process, the more they'd get. And did this go every year? Obviously not during no, World it was, War it was II, every four, every it was four every years. four years. And most of the, the mountain resorts really were health spas. That came about because in the, during the Industrial Revolution, Great Britain had all the fog, all the smog. All the cities, industrial cities, had tons of smog. People had TB and all that. So when, when you looked at St. Moritz, Davos, all these high alpine resorts were to treat TB, tuberculosis. So they had tons of summer visitors. So they had all the facilities and no winter ones. Uh, so that's when the whole winter ski teaching came in Hannes Schneider and St. Anton, St. Christoph in the 28 and all that. I mean, his whole role was to try to fill bed bases. He worked for the hotel. And it was to create, they had the beds. How do you do them? And, and for the mountain villages, they had all these people for, needed to work in the summer. What was their occupation during the winter? So they were totally promoting skiing. But basically, it was totally tourist-driven, vacation-dollar-driven. Now, 32, PSIA starts in uh, 61, so 29 years. When did America start getting involved, and were Americans going over and watching? Well, it was interesting that, that these countries tried to actually exported their top instructors to America. So when you looked at early ski instruction in America, like Sun Valley, I think, is the first ski area in 1936 and that, tremendous Austrian influence. They were there. Hannes Schneider came and taught at North Conway in New Hampshire. They brought him over to promote it. Uh, Stratton Mountain you had the, was Austrian, Stratton Mountain Boys. Emile Lillet, the famous French uh, skier and the, the founder of the French Technique, he was at Squaw Valley. And, and so basically they were exporting their top instructors to come to the U.S. 
to teach. So the U.S., there, all the arguments in the ski magazine and that was, was the Stratton ski technique better than, than uh, the French technique at Squaw Valley as the modified Austrian technique at Alpine Meadows. Um, but the whole point at that time was when people really wanted a ski vacation, they'd go to Europe. And even in the ski magazines, every ski magazine had two or three uh, articles in each issue about skiing the different areas of Europe. So once again, the, the European countries were exporting their top people. And when you look at the founding fathers of, of American technique, Paul Villar, he was Swiss. Uh, but, but initially, the Americans did go, send a little team of observers that, that looked, um, and then we gradually got involved. Um, but at the same time, we were always competing, so whatever technique was doing better at inner skis in those discussions, that was being exported to America. And, and I mean, people didn't go to resorts in America based on which one had the best skiing, because most of them, at that time, America was going through this tremendous expansion, people learning to ski. You know, the baby boomers were getting into the sport. So uh, all the advertisement was, what ski school is the best? Who's going to give the best? And it was always, it primarily was ski weeks. Everybody's known for a ski week. Uh, so that was always the discussion. And then uh, in the late 50s, uh, some of the Americans went over, and they were, they were looking at establishing their own organization. Um, so they, were, they viewed a couple inner skis, and then we got our founding in 61. So I'm just curious, have you tried the Swiss technique, the Austrian technique, the French technique? Yes. And what kind of differences did you see or experience in those? I went to the Austrian ski school in St. Christophe. You did? Okay. Yeah, so I've been through that one and got certified in their process, and I've been through parts of the French ski school in Chamonix. Um, so I knew them and all that, and they were very different. Um, a, a classic there was the Austrian technique did very much of a counter-rotation, counter-position, um, lots of lower body, upper body separation. Uh, they were the first one that, that developed a short turn called the Vedelin. Everybody needs to do a short turn in that one. And the, the Austrians were very much very structured in that you, each class had a very definitive uh, progression you went through. And it was fascinating is that you, literally it didn't matter where you could ski on the mountain. It depended how well you mastered the progression and what the next part was. So we went from snowplow turns to stem turn to stem Christie to parallel turn to hop turns to short turns. Um, and it was almost like finished form, very much like in the early days of figure skating where you had to do the school figures you were scored on. So it didn't matter how well you skied. It was how well you looked making the turn. So it was pretty interesting there. And then, and literally in the class there, you'd pack out your own area. The class would sidestep up the hill, pack, and you'd practice, hike up it, practice, hack, practice. There was no grooming on the mountains. You, you couldn't assume anything was fully packed. Um, so until you could do a good hop parallel turn, you really had to stay in the teaching areas where everybody was packing it out. Um, the French on the other side were more creative and they, they skied with rotation. So sort of the opposite, where the whole body would rotate in and they'd bank, they'd inclined into the turns. Uh, and this technique didn't give you very good short turns, so they were more medium and longer turns. And the French were a little bit loose. They had some progressions, but it was uh, a lot more uphill Christie's. I think at one time they had uh, like 35 versions of an uphill Christie, you know, the fan technique coming there. Um, but it was all on rounder turns, smoother turns, 
and uh, they weren't the disciplinarians. The, 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 the casual glance at a French instructor was he was half a mile in front of the class and then stopping having a cigarette while he waited for the class to catch up with him, uh, which was a little exaggerated, but that was part of the battle where the Austrians said, we're going to teach you this and that, and the French said, no, we're going to ski the mountain, we're going to get down there. Um, and it was interesting is that the Swiss, being the neutral country between them, they did a split rotation. So they initiated the turn with the rotation, finished with the counter-rotation. So they were half Austrian, half French. <laughs> so they split the difference, and they called it good. You know, and then the Italians started to get into it a, a little bit later. And uh, the, the Italians were notorious for super parallel. The turn has never been seen before, and we still don't know what the turn looks like. Uh, but the, the classic thing, the Italians were unbelievably elegant. I mean, they dressed meticulously. They're extremely stylish on the ski. And uh, I mean, they, they had a, a good progression, but they were more, how did it look? you know, and had a nice you know, the style and all that, and they just hoped the students could catch up with it. Uh, but, but it really was interesting, and, and uh, I mean, it really helped the Americans because it probably our first foray into uh, inner ski was we got the 1968 inner ski. And we so got... Really, just seven years after... Just seven years, which was kind of unheard of. Uh, but a couple of driving forces was American really wanted it because we needed to gain uh, an international reputation. Because as I said, most ski schools in the U.S., even though we're part of PSIA, they taught different techniques. They Austrian, modified Austrian. Mammoth Mountain taught Allberg, you know, which was from Hannes Schneider's days in 1928. Um, I mean, it was a real classic, and you just kind of shook your head. But, but. Basically, there's always this argument about which was best and wasn't any unification. And with the start of PSA, we're hoping for a unification. That was the start. And it was a start to try to get American instructors teaching because up to then, the majority of the instructors came from overseas. So we were fighting it, and it gave us a great opportunity to gain some, some recognition. And, and most importantly was the recognition in the U.S. that all of a sudden Sports Illustrated followed it. Uh, time magazine, Life magazine at that time had some articles on it. So basically it gave the American public an awareness that there were American instructors, there was an American teaching method, and that you could look for that in now, there. When did a, a change begin to happen where maybe this wasn't so much marketing-based as it was teaching-based and really sharing information between organizations? Uh, th they started, uh, when would I say? I know for sure probably the biggest one was 72. 72. 72, because the Austrians came out with short skis. At that time, everybody was skiing. I mean, the typical male-length ski was 210. And the women, you know, 195 was a normal one there. Uh, and and the, the progressions, no matter what country you came from, there still was a version of a snowplow. There still was a version of a snowplow with match skis. There still was a Stem Christie type scenario. Uh, all of them had hops. So when you looked at them, they, they looked a little bit different, but the real outcome on the snow was the same. Uh, and in that one, the Austrians came up with shorter skis and tried to talk more skidding, more sliding. It was Professor Krukenhauser was running it then. 
Um, that was innovative. Uh, there was some talk about teaching progressions coming in there. Uh, but it still was a battle. And, and literally, when the Americans uh, went to it, what we really, the main focus there was to show our personality, to show our spirit, to show our fun. I mean, basically, at Interski, there was an arena. And the Americans built a jump, so they came up the hill and jumped over the fence to land into the arena. So basically, and, and the Americans didn't go quite as strict form and all this, or they weren't as tight in all these progressions because it wasn't the end of the world. We were out there to enjoy the sport. We wanted to have fun. Um, so it was very novel on the American side saying that, that we shouldn't take the sport so seriously, that it is a recreation, let's have fun. And then we had the Austrians there sort of saying, if you get on these shorter skis, at that time their shorter skis I think were 165, um, which is very contemporary to what we're seeing today. Uh, and they had a lot easier progressions. So, so that part was interesting. And then it, fo it followed up. Really, probably the biggest breakthrough initially came in the, the next, old, next inner ski in '76, uh, no, '75. Uh, and that's when the Americans introduced the skill concept. And we were a little bit loosey goosey there, but the real point of the skills concept was to, to start talking about skiing that there are different types of rotary movements, there's different types of angulation, inclination, edging, and pressuring. Because basically, we said there's a lot of different personalities out there. There are different body styles, there are different personalities. And, and from the American point of view, we were looking and saying, how can we integrate all these different ski schools in the U.S.? Because some of them say, well, we do a little counter-rotation, they do rotation. We just, that's the type of rotary. You know, you can understand it. Just say in our ski school, we do this type of rotation, or you can do a counter-rotate. Um, but it, but it was the first time that the student could literally go from ski school to ski school and they could have a common terminology. They may ask to do something different. Where, you know, up to then, it, sometimes it was funny is that if someone had been taking the first three lessons at a French ski school, then they went to the other, another school that happened to be out of town or something and went to an Austrian ski school, they'd tell them everything they learned sucked. Because you're rotating and you need to counter-rotate. And you go, people, you know, instead of saying, you, you can link turns, we can get down a green run, uh, we'll take you that next step. They tell you, no, you got to start right at the beginning and learn how to do it correctly. Uh, now, with years of doing this, though, how was America accepted by these other organizations? Uh, I th the first real change, in my mind, came in at the 75 Interski. I mean, when we first put on the inner ski in 68, it gave America credibility. We became a player in the organization. We got involved in that discussion. We, we gained a lot of credibility. So that was huge in there. And then it was huge because we started developing American members. We had a way of communicating. Up to that time, there was no education system. You didn't have any information. There was no... No manuals were written. I mean, basically, an Austrian manual was in German, a French manual was in French, and the Swiss had Swiss you could get in three languages because they have three languages: Italian, Swiss, and and German. Um, so we so we we couldn't do any education. You were reliant on the ski schools doing your training and providing any training material, and basically they said just do what I do. 
Uh, so once once PSA got going, we created a manual. I think by 65, 64, we had the first manual, uh, the white book that came out. And that really started the whole education process. So that was huge from the foundation point of view. And because we were at Interski, we got credibility that we could compete with everything else. Uh, the other interesting thing at the 68 Olympics, I mean, the 68 Interski is the first time women demonstrators were there. And it was the Americans that had uh, at least two women. Uh, Betsy Glenn that I know of and uh, Jean Richmond was on it and I mean that was unheard of I mean ski instruction was a man's sport and when you did the final show it was the top top skiers which was presumed to be men we had the first women there now you said competing uh was a winner declared no there wasn't a, a winner wasn't compared but when you got on the hill uh did you do your progressions you used to have at least an hour on there but you do these formations skiing for an hour well, but no, but you discussed. You'd go through a progression, okay. and you'd be yep. talking about the progression. But then you'd you'd intermix it with some nice formations to keep to just show how proficient you were, how beautiful your skiing is, how you want to emulate that type of skiing. So there really was this thing that you needed to execute at extremely high level because you want to be inspiring. So if another country was more inspiring than you. Uh, you were put on the second chair. So there wasn't a competition, but at the same time, your credibility was at stake, that, that you either were in that ballpark where you competed or you were a second-class nation. So it was a pretty... So, so it was highly contested. I mean, <laughs> yeah. people tra they, they trained a lot. Uh, and it was very common at that time that, that half the Austrian, Swiss, French demo teams were top-level racers at that time now when did you become involved with america's inner ski team well the first one was 75 for you for me but it was interesting that i was in austria st christoph for the 72 inner ski and i was training with the austrian team i mean i wasn't on it but i was right. able to go train because because they took a large group out there training and they just and they basically they had like 30 of their top skiers out there and they'd pick the top 10 I mean, it was just a process of elimination. Uh, there were days when the Japanese came. Uh, they were unbelievable. They'd bring like 40 skiers, and they'd be doing tryouts, tryouts, tryouts up to the last minute of just getting the best skiers. So when we say it wasn't a competition, no, but it was the bringing the top skiers. Now, when did more countries begin becoming involved? Oh, it, it kept growing. I mean, it... Like I said, it started originally with the Austria, France, the three, the three. big three, and then the Italians came in, and then Canada, the U.S. got involved there, um, and and the organization tried to to gather more because everything was an opportunity. So you had the the Polish were coming in; they were a little bit communist, but they they later on got some and. Japan was always big. Japan, most people don't realize, but for decades was the largest ski market in the world. They it had more was. skiers than the U.S. and Europe combined. Uh, because Hannes Schneider in 1928, who, started, who really was one of the founders of ski teaching, he went to Japan and taught the royal family how to ski. And if the royal family skied, every Japanese citizen wanted to ski. And I think to this day, I think there's like 400 ski areas in Japan. Huge. People don't realize, but they're everywhere you go. There's skiers, and and you know they're not as dominant as, as they once were. But it it was uh, 
very large and and the Japanese always used to come with two teams. They had the professional ski instructors and the amateur ski instructors. So Japan was competing against Japan who was competing against the world. Uh, now, I want to go back to 72. You said uh, Austria came in with shorter skis. Yep. And uh, I want to go all the way back to the Arlberg method from 1928. How much had equipment changed, if at all, between 1928 and 1972? Huge. In, in 28, they were on 220s. They had fixed toes low boots, and the heel was free because it basically did skin up the hill to ski down. There's no ski lifts. Uh, most of their skiing was geared to be skiing in powder. I mean, nothing was packed. Uh, when he started to teach, once again, they'd, they'd pack out the little teaching area, but the skiing really was on pristine snow. Uh, so it had a lot more wedge orientation just to get the skis down. Um, I mean, in the early days, they didn't think there was a parallel turn. So it was, a st- it was basically a... St- Stem Christie at that time, which was a snowplow with a skidded ending. Um, and that was the primary turn until, I think, the middle 30s or something like that. They said the first parallel turn came. Uh, but what's fascinating is, is if they had movies of these early days. And they, there was a guy from Innsbruck in one of Hannes Schneider's movies that actually had twin tips. And they actually skied backwards. So here it is, like 1936. They couldn't make a parallel turn, but they had guys go and switch on twin tip. So <laughs> that, it goes around, comes around. Uh, but it, it was a slow evolution. And, and obviously, you had World War II that slowed it down a bit. Um, but the real changes started to come late 40s, early 50s. Metal skis. Howard Head came out with metal skis. I think metal, they put metal edges on a ski in 19, like 47, something like that. Um, skis got a little shorter, but even then it was still 2.5, 2.10 in there. Uh, they had bindings that would hold your heel down. We started, uh, Sun Valley had one of the first lifts, 1936. Sugar Bowl in California was like 1936. Uh, kind of the old way to get your ski length selection wasn't it to stand with your hand extended up above extend your head the high, yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> uh you know cranmore had built this lift that was based on the of the, uh, the from the ford motor company the way they did the the whole vacuum oh, conveyor the, belts coming around mm-hmm. there you know because that was a new process before they always built cars and now all of a sudden you had the conveyor belts with they had these little cars that was basically designed by ford motor company that went up Mount Cranmore. And, you know, so it was in the old days, uh, we had that part. But all of a sudden, you started getting more lifts. I think the first uh, T-bar, J-bar, was from Quebec, discovered there. So that was a, that was a breakthrough. And, and really, a- after the war, you had war surpl- surplus skis. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, you had rentals out there. You had the clothing, you had skis, you had boots, and then you had all the all the... The people coming home from the war and the economy started to turn around a bit. So that really created the boom. So probably the biggest boom you started to see in skiing was in the 50s. And what kind of an impact did the 10th Mountain Division have on American skiing and PSIA development? Oh, in my eyes, it's been tremendous. Um, Number one, you trained all these people to teach. They, because they could ski, but they were trained how to ski. I mean, literally, when the 10th Mountain, the majority of those people didn't know how to ski. I mean, they picked one. And, and some of the top top instructors at that time taught the 10th Mountain. Uh, 
you know, and I was kidding that like Aspen had uh, an Austrian ski school, Pfeiffer, and he ended up teaching at the 10th Mountain one. And, and you, you looked around, some of the old teachers were all the ski school directors from around here. They taught the Americans how to ski. And after the war, it's just amazing when you look at how they went out. You talk about who developed it. I mean, Vail was developed by the 10th Mountain. Aspen kept going more by the 10th Mountain. I mean, almost everywhere you look as the skier, new ski area is popping out, you have it, the 10th Mountain Association. They were the managing areas, teaching at the areas. Uh, it got people excited about it. Um, you know, Life Magazine started writing articles about it. They got people involved like the Hollywood was huge. Sun Valley was huge. Avril Harriman in there, and they had the trains that came there. So, I mean, you, you look at the movie stars from the late 40s, early 50s, uh, they were always going to the big resorts. Um, but to me, the, the 10th Mountain kept it going. I mean, I, I don't think you can, there's not many resorts you can look at that's, that you can say they didn't have some 10th Mountain personality character that helped, helped drive them. And my fascinating information from you, I could go on and on and on. Uh, we're going to do this in two parts. So let's wrap up part one. Any thoughts you'd like to add before we close? I mean, part one really established the foundation. It got us involved in the game. It got us enthusiastic. We started seeing a market coming. People wanted to ski. The boomers were coming. They're bringing their, fam their families up to ski. So really, that was a foundation that gave us the opportunity to really develop as a profession. Mike Porter, thanks very much for joining us. We've been talking about interski development and the history of interski. Part one from the PSIA AASI Mobile Studios here in Eagle Vale, Colorado.